0: either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie! It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks! You sorry? You waste all our film! It's so bad! Some Oscar contenders to talk about this week, and some not, but definitely some. And <laughs> <laughs> That uh, seems appropriate. It's that time of year. Welcome. This is the Screening Room podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, and we're from MadWolf.com. And we will start out with an epic. It's the story of a mob hitman recalling his possible involvement in the slaying of Jimmy Hoffa, latest from Martin Scorsese, The Irishman. It was like the army. You followed orders. You did the right thing. You got rewarded. A friend of ours is having a little trouble. friend at the top. Back then, there was nobody in this country who didn't know who Jimmy Hoffa was. Hiya Frank, would you like to be a part of history? Yes, I would. Big business and the government are working together trying to pull us apart. Something's gotta be done.
1: I'm lover.
0: We're going at war with these people. War. A... Things have gotten out of hand with our friends.
1: You gotta sit down, everybody says so.
0: No, I'm not sitting down, I can't do it.
1: It's what it is. What it is. I know things they don't
0: know I know. It's gonna happen. Either way, he's going. This has been getting a lot of headlines really for weeks now, starting off with the fact that it's a Netflix movie. Yep. And it's going to be on Netflix the 27th, right? Mm -hmm. The weekend after Thanksgiving. Two weeks of theatrical release. Right. Two weeks of theatrical release, uh, which starts this week. And we would recommend definitely you seeing it on the big screen. Right. Because this is an incredible epic. It's certainly one of the best movies of the year. It's probably one of the best movies of the decade. Mm. It's one of the best movies of Scorsese's career. It's late in the game for him, obviously. It's late in the game for all of these stars, the major stars of this movie. And it really strikes me as a movie that is the filmmaker looking back on his own career and his own life as it tells the story of someone looking back on a character's life.
1: Right. So it's De Niro and Joe Pesci and Al Pacino. Some heavy hitters there. The
0: first time we didn't realize the first time Al Pacino has worked I didn't realize. Somebody told us the other night and I had to stop and go this is the first time Pacino has worked with Scorsese. Scorsese, yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing to me after all these years. It's taken this long.
1: Yeah, and he plays Hoffa, and it's perfect choice. It is. He he does such a great job with Jimmy Hoffa. And Joe Pesci is the one... What a gem! What a brilliant, beautiful, and, and unexpected performance. Very yeah. gentle, very low-key. Very key. dialed down
0: because now he's become his mobster guy, yeah. especially from Goodfellas, has become a sort of popular culture. Yeah, just the crazy, mm-hmm. the crazy uh, Napoleon complex mobster. But yeah. this one is so against type, yeah. so quiet, yeah. so dignified. Just a just a very quietly powerful mob boss that you do not cross at all. And everybody comes to him to fix things, and he...
1: But he's got real affection.
0: He does, he is, yeah. particularly And for, loyalty.
1: Right, particularly for De Niro's character. De Niro's the lead, and, and it's a film that will remind you how powerful an actor yeah. he is.
0: Because he's another one that over the years has become, I think it's become easy to forget how good he can be. Because he's done some comedies, he's done some bad comedies. And it kind of gets watered down. He hasn't had a role like this in quite some time. The whole thing, he plays Frank Sheeran, a real guy. Yep. And it's based on a book about Frank Sheeran written by Charles Brandt. And it chronicles Frank Sheeran's life, as he tells it, in The Mob, and, as he tells it, his involvement in the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. Now, since the book has come out on both sides there's been camps that say no it's not credible other camps say yes it is so it's it's kind of gets that moniker of historical fiction right could it could be true parts of it could be true none of it could be true all of it could be true but the point is for the sake of this movie it tells a fantastic story and de niro is the heart and soul of it as this man Looking back on and you've made a good point about this and I'll let you make it a different type of perspective Because as the movie begins he's an old man looking back on his life,
1: right? And and so I actually think that the fact that the the truth of the story itself is in question Works really well for this film because it's hard to know from the beginning how reliable a narrator Sheeran's character is, mm-hmm. you know, and and not just because he might be lying, but because when we meet the character, he's already in a nursing home, so he's just looking back, and that's really what the film is about, yes. I think. Yes, right. It's and it's as you've said, it's sort of Scorsese looking back on his career. He's mm-hmm. got a character, well, looking back on his career, mm-hmm. looking back on what got him to where he was, and it's interesting to compare it to something like Goodfellas or even before that, you know, Mean Streets. So, which is it's funny. So, Mean Streets is when. Scorsese was young, good mm-hmm. fellas, when he was middle-aged. And mm-hmm. he's like, a middle-aged guy looking back <laughs> at his career. Yeah. A young man looking forward to this career. And this is an old man reminiscing and facing the inevitable, right? Uh, the the loneliness, the regret, uh, the end is near. And it's, um, and it's a meandering sort of a, a reminiscence. But of course, because Scorsese does it, it's put together so beautifully.
0: Yeah, and that is a... Telltale sign of his skill as a filmmaker, and we should say the the scriptwriter who adapted this book is Steven Zaillian, yeah. who has worked with Scorsese before in Gangs of New York, mm-hmm. but he's also he also did the script for Schindler's List. Yeah. He's done. He's had a few uh, clunks, uh, mm-hmm. chinks in his armor, but he's done some really great work, and he adapts the book here. And you can easily, even though it's a mob story, you can easily take the mob out of it and yeah. just and just view it as this old man looking back on the saying, life comes at you fast. Yeah. Here he is. Here The choices that he's made has led him to this spot in his yep. life, yep. where he is with his family, uh, w- where he is, how he thinks his, not only his legacy, but his soul, mm-hmm. his very soul mm-hmm. is the result of all the choices that he's made mm-hmm. over the years. And whether it's a mob story or not, I think that's one of the uh, layers that it works on. And if you haven't heard already, it's three and a half hours. Uh, that's a long time. That's a long time. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that after the first, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour, it had me, it had me so deeply, yeah. I quit caring. The yeah,
1: it doesn't feel it. It really doesn't. Now, it feels like an epic, but it doesn't feel... You you don't tire of it. Yeah. I mean, and again, but you don't you don't really watch a Scorsese movie and think, well, this big chunk could have been deleted and this big, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't feel it. I do think that there are going to be people who might be happy that it's on Netflix as soon as it is because it's easier to pause and go to the bathroom. So yeah. don't get the bu- don't buy the big pop if you go to the the, the screening.
0: But see, that's what I loved about. The big screen version, yeah. because speaking of Netflix, one thing I did think about when it was going on is that it probably would have made a very riveting series sure. on Netflix. Mm-hmm. But as one standalone film, it did. It had me yeah. after that first forty-five minutes an hour yep. to, to an hour, totally absorbed in the story, totally absorbed, and not sorry one bit that I, that I sat through the whole thing. Oh, I mean, no. I, we would recommend the big screen version and. Again, let's get back to the performances. They're, they're tremendous. We mm-hmm. talked about De Niro, how you're just reminded, oh man, he is one of the best. All time. Just one of the best. Yeah, Pacino makes Jimmy Hoffa, who's such a legendary figure, yeah. larger than life yeah. figure now in popular culture, makes him a very interesting layered character. Mm-hmm. At one moment, he's just unapologetically corrupt. Mm-hmm. Other times, he's incredibly loyal, a loyal friend who yeah. cares deeply yeah. about the people around him. And then, of course, he's very uh, personable and can command a room yeah. like nobody. And yeah. that's Pacino exactly. all the way.
1: It is funny because because as much as Pesci is playing against type, right, Pacino is making the most of playing to type, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's the explosive guy. He's the nutty guy. But he does it in such a different sometimes fun, really fascinating way in this.
0: Yeah, it's tremendous character studies inside the, this epic. And we also have to give mention to a smaller character, uh, one of well, the oldest daughter, Frank Sheeran's oldest daughter, who is played as an adult by Anna Paquin. And throughout the times that the character becomes old enough for Anna Paquin to play her, she doesn't say a word. No. The entire time. And you see this character as a young girl Watching, watching her father. What are you doing? Where are you going? Just sitting back and watching as a child does. And then when that character is older and Anna Paquin plays her, she's still watching. And then toward the end, she finally speaks and she asks a direct question to her father, that Frank, uh, Robert De Niro. That that question just carries so it much does. weight. It does. And it, it reminds you that... This film, and Scorsese, can also work softly and Mm -hmm. subtly with a small character like this. And man, when she asks him that question, it really serves as the, the watershed to move the entire film to its aching conclusion. Right, exactly. It's an interesting part because it strikes you. She strikes you with her silence. Yeah. But there's a reason for mm-hmm. that, and it makes that that question so much more piercing. It's just one of the many, many reasons. If you can't tell <laughs> that that we think this is a masterful, masterful film. Again, if you want to watch it on Netflix, that's understood. It sure. is a Netflix movie after all. And that whole debate about uh, Netflix's role in cinema right now, along with the whole debate with uh, Scorsese's views on Marvel films. Just put all that aside. Yeah. That's for another day. Just appreciate this. And Which is
1: almost destined to become a uh, an Oscar contender for oh, best picture, yes. best actor, best supporting actor, best director, director
0: yeah. screenplay. Yeah, I think so. It's tremendous. It's tremendous. Check out The Irishman. Got another historical drama next. American car designer Carol Shelby and driver Ken Miles battle corporate interference, the laws of physics, and their own personal demons to build a revolutionary race car for Ford and challenge Ferrari at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1966. Ford versus Ferrari. Mr. Ford, Ferrari has a message for you, sir. What did he say? He said Ford makes ugly little cars in ugly factories. And, uh, he calls you fat, sir. We're going to bury Ferrari at Le Mans. So the great Carroll Shelby is going to build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. And how long did you tell them you needed? Two or three hundred years? Ninety days. (laughs) Even though I'm a big sports fan, I wouldn't call myself a big motorsports fan, but Mm -hmm. this one had my attention. I was really excited to see this, and like most good directors that handle historical type of story. James Mangold here, along with uh, the screenwriters, are smart to boil it down to intimate stories that gel between the characters and let the historical events kind of fall around them.
1: Exactly. And they, they couldn't have asked for better actors to play the characters in these intimate relationships, these intimate performances. So the lead is Matt Damon, Shelby. He plays uh, Shelby. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the always extraordinary Christian Bale plays Miles.
0: I I had, when I called one of the morning shows, the radio morning shows we talked to, uh, one of the hosts today said, Oh, did uh, Christian Bale lose 50 pounds and go into some other type? And I said, yeah, he plays one of the cars. (laughs) He was great. But that's the type of... Christian Bale legend. He's known for just just dissolving into these roles, but you know what? You can laugh about it and joke about it and it can be funny. He's great. I mean, he's just an extraordinary performer
1: and what's fun in this one is that you so rarely get to hear him
0: with his own accent that it's
1: almost alarming. You're like, he's so good at this accent. Oh, wait, he's from there. Right.
0: You almost (laughs) think, why is he speaking in that accent? (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah, so it tells their story as... Friends, frenemies sometimes, as the company Ford is trying to finally beat the company Ferrari in this race. Right. So it's mainly that Ferrari
1: has embarrassed Henry Ford Jr., played by Tracy Letts. So Tracy Letts is a a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright who, in the last 20 years, has become an actor.
0: And he's good. He's so good. But you're almost like, well, when are you going to (laughs) write (laughs) again?
1: And so, kind of out of spite they have decided that they're going to beat Ferrari at Le Mans, which is the, the race that Ferrari just wins year after year after year after year. And they don't seem like a big threat because they're Ford. Sure. And so they hire Carol Shelby to build a car that will beat Ferrari, and he hires Miles to drive it. So it's funny because it's really not a film where it's sort of, you know, America versus Italy or like, you know, this dodgy sort of you know safe company versus River r- r- Ferrari. It's more actually the conflict is between the yes men corporate America versus the actual sort of upstarts who shake things up and mm-hmm. are not. Your cookie cutter," he says at one point. "You can't win a race by committee." Yeah, and that's really the that's the core of the conflict is between Ford as a company and these two revolutionary
0: racers that they hire to help them achieve their goals. That's the thing because that all falls around the relationship between these two characters, yes. and that's usually the right way to approach something yeah. like this. Again, it's director James Mangold who has done uh, Walk the Line. And Logan, Logan. And it's the um, the screenwriters are the Butterworths and they have done some great work. They did Edge of Tomorrow, even though that title is awful. They, <laughs> they did Black Mass, Spectre. They did Get On Up. So they've done some solid yeah. things here, too. But yeah, that's usually when you when you close in and your focus tightens. Yeah. Then you can have more resonance by letting again, letting those historical events fall around it.
1: And Mangold does a nice job of balancing racetrack thrills and, you know, sort of big boardroom sort of Mm -hmm. conversations. I mean, he does a really good job of making sure that nothing you're not on the racetrack so long that you get tired of it, and you're not
0: dealing with sort of the talking heads for so long you get tired of it. He really does a good job of yeah, that. Yeah, because, because at the heart of this, it's not just—you couldn't even get to the driving until they had the design. Yeah. They had to get the design they first. They built the car. Right. Again, though, Christian Bale, he's
1: just an absolute joy in this movie. And his on-screen, you know, that, that frenemy business, mm-hmm. it's— Matt Damon is the perfect foil for him in this movie. <laughs> and and also Bale is very very skinny in this one. And uh I mean not machinist
0: skinny, but he's <laughs> <laughs> I hope not for God's sake. Don't do that again. But he's
1: real angular and sort of reedy, you know. And and Damon is a little bit rounder and he's a little bit more of a company man, but he's not really and and they just it's there's it's just so good to see really really strong actors spar like this. Yes. And and it's it's just a fun film to watch.
0: Yeah. Definitely. So even if you're not, like I said, if you're not the biggest race car fan in the world, don't let that dissuade you because I think this one could be in some Oscar consideration as well. Christian Bale for sure in Ford versus Ferrari. (laughs) Next up, it's the reboot we didn't know we needed. When a young systems engineer blows the whistle on a dangerous technology, Charlie's Angels are called into action, putting their lives on the line to protect us all. And God bless them. It's the new Charlie's Angels.
1: I can't sleep at night. I'm the lead programmer on a product that can revolutionize the power industry, but
0: there is a possibility it can be weaponized.
1: Elena, we need to go.
0: You know no! Ringing, Bob, I'm Who are you? I'm Bosley. Welcome to the Pound's and Agency. We exist because traditional law enforcement can't keep up. I don't like that, boy. You guys are like, lady spies. Danesformer are my six. Oh God. What did you do to spend? I compressed his carotid and deoxygenated his brainstem. Well, that sounds painful. Don't worry. He's going to wake up.
1: Unless he doesn't. So not a likely Oscar contender, but no. so worth a look.
0: Yeah. Fun enough. More fun than I thought it would be. I had to look. It had been longer than I thought. It usually is when I, when I, <laughs> <laughs> when I think something like this since the last of the Drew Barrymores. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, in 2006. Mm. Full throttle. Um, so it's been a few. But still, it's not like you felt there was a big demand for this. No. But Elizabeth Banks who is the banks of all trades here, (laughs) she evidently thought she could breathe some life into it. And for the most part, she's right. She's the writer. Mm -hmm. She's the director. Nice. And she's also really one of the major, maybe the major, co-stars. She's one of the many, many Bosleys. Nice. Because this time, Bosley, in this Charlie universe, Bosley is not a name, it's a rank in the organization. So she is one of the Bosleys. Then you've got Patrick Stewart's a Bosley. Michael Strahan is a Bosley. (laughs) There's just a bunch of them. But uh, she is the Bosley taking care of these Charlie's Angels. And uh, this time it's Kristen Stewart. And it's uh, Naomi Scott, who is from... She's from the live action of Aladdin. Yes. She played Jasmine. uh, Jasmine. Yeah. And she doesn't sing in this, but she has a great singing voice (laughs) as well. And the third one I hadn't seen before. um, Her name is Ella Belinska. And she's known to me as the tall one. (laughs) I mean, she's not Hooray for tall girls. She's not quite as tall as you, but... (laughs) In the, on the screen, she's like, man, she's the tall one. But anyway, Naomi Scott's character is the uh, systems engineer before she gets to be an angel, that she is maybe blowing the whistle on this technology that could be used by the bad guys. Well, of course, the bad guys want it. And that's the main spy story. Who's double-crossing whom? Who is really you know, out for uh, nefarious means here? And it is, it is fun. I think for a lot of the uh, vibe of it, feels a lot more true to the original TV series from the 70s. And, uh, and you bet my 12-year-old self was a big fan, so uh, <laughs> I speak from experience. But, uh, I mean, the, the Drew Barrymore, Charlie's Angels, they had some charm about them, but if you look back now, they really tried to just bludgeon you with the style mm-hmm. and the physics-defying antics as they kicked through the air and things like that. But this one feels a lot more wink wink we're having some fun with this. We're self-aware. We know what we're doing, and we're going to go with it. And and Elizabeth Banks, just her persona, is kind of that way. Yeah, like she's cool. Yeah, you know, just kind of a little more laid back, a little cool. We're going to have some fun with this. And and there's some nice, you know, there's some nice camera work and some some nifty um, set pieces with action. I think the thing is, the story is a little thin, especially to hold up a full two-hour running time. Boy. It's another one. I, I say this a lot. If they could have trimmed like 20 minutes right, off of this thing, right. you'd have come out of there thinking, wow, that was a real fun, quick romp. But even so, it's amusing without being hilarious. It's an action filled without being just thrill a minute. So it, it just it gets there. It is fun enough. It's more fun than I thought it would be. And definitely, if you go, and this probably won't surprise you for a movie like this, stay for the credits. Right, right, right. Because the credits have a nice run of cameos Uh, Throughout And also, throughout the movie, it gives you plenty of callbacks, not only to the original series. You get callbacks to the Drew Barrymore years as well, to the entire franchise, and they have some fun with it. So, yeah, I thought it was a—I think the the basic bottom line for a movie like this is that they're trying to kick off a new franchise. Mm. And at the end, you think, oh, God, no. No,
1: you don't. So the two things that I uh, take away from this—number one, Kristen Stewart— it's a very, very different role for her, and thank God for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just because you, never see, you always see her angsty. Yeah. You know, even when she, and she's, she has turned in some really great performances in the last few years, she and she's fun. got a horror movie coming out that I can't wait to see. Yeah. But
0: it's just fun to see her do something fun. And it can't be overstated the effect of Elizabeth Banks, obviously a female as the writer director.
1: That's here. exactly what my next point was going to be
0: because the difference even even in the, the Drew Barrymore's
1: there's some fun there and it's certainly not the sort of leering, you know, I forget what they called Charlie's like like jiggle comedy or something awful like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. But the the difference is that you know, you can still have attractive women on screen being attractive and the camera doesn't leer at them. So the camera isn't necessarily the heterosexual male eye. Yeah. The camera is just a camera. It could be a woman's camera. We also see other attractive women, but yes. we don't necessarily leer at them. That's and exactly that just right. makes the movie so much more fun.
0: Yeah, the way I, the way I said in my written review, I said they they own their sexuality but they're not sexualized. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, they there are many scenes where they look great and they have fun with that. They have fun with it's clear they appreciate their female friendships. Right. There's value in that, but they also have some good-natured ribbing about awkward flirting and a love of cheese. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you can't miss the fact that when a movie like this that's known from the beginning for its jiggle comedy or whatever you call it, the effect that a a female filmmaker has on it is totally, totally different. Very uh, refreshing. Yeah, very refreshing. So even just that alone is refreshing, but they're able to add more to it as well. So, yeah, uh, much more fun than we thought. The new Charlie's Angels. (laughs) Getting very serious for this next one. Idealistic Senate staffer Daniel J. Jones, tasked by his boss to lead an investigation into the CIA's post-9-11 detention and interrogation program, uncovers shocking secrets in the report. Morning, Dan. Morning, Senator. Have you seen the story today in the New York Times? Evidently, the CIA destroyed tapes of interrogations of al-Qaeda detainees. I want to find out what was on the tapes and why they were destroyed. They waterboarded him 183 times. Everything they got from him was either a lie or something they already had. If it works, why do you need to do it 183 times? Maybe when the report comes out, people will finally see that. I vehemently disagree with the narrative here. The United States does not torture.
1: Dan, you need to be
0: careful here. They can't destroy the documents. They can go after the next best thing. You. Democracy is messy.
1: If the Times had your report, we would print it tomorrow. No. If it's going to come out, it's going to come out the right way.
0: Well, the first thing to say about this one is Adam Driver is having a hell of a year. Yes,
1: he is. Whole- Holy
0: cow! Wow. I mean, I thought after seeing Marriage Story, and I still, I still think so. He's almost a shoe in for an Oscar nomination for mm-hmm. that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he still has Star Wars coming out yeah. before the end of the year. And now he has this. Uh, let's not forget Ghouls. <laughs> yeah, Dead Don't Die. That's, That's right. right. So hats off to you, my friend. That's Good right. year.
1: I will see anything Adam Driver's in. He is just an incredibly talented actor. And he has a lot of weight on his shoulders in this film. Yeah. It's so fascinating because, uh, so Scott Z. Burns writes and directs. And he's written a lot of films before. This is his first time directing. And it's a lot to try to do. And, it, and I'm not going to lie, he stumbles a little bit in the first maybe 15 or 20 minutes trying to figure out how to balance so much dialogue, so many characters. He needs you to know what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, in the underneath it, it's such an angry film. But he doesn't preach, which I appreciated. You don't feel like you're being bludgeoned to death. Most of, I think, the film's anger is expressed through Adam Driver's face. Yep. There's a shot in this movie about halfway through where Adam Driver is suddenly looking at a commercial for the movie Zero Dark Thirty. And just watching him watch that. I'll never be able to see the movie Zero, dark Thirty
0: the same way again, yeah, and that's that just shows you how great actors, how they can convey emotion. Just with their facial yeah. expressions or their movements. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's a it's such a serious topic, obviously. He was a staffer for Dianne Feinstein, who's played by Annette Benning. Annette
1: Benning, You know, it's funny. About once a year, sometime around Oscars, Annette Benning <laughs> has a new movie come out. And every single year, you're like, damn, Annette Benning is good. She's very, very good. She completely disappears into this role. You just believe... From beginning to end, it's just Feinstein. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful. And in fact, to be honest with you, the whole, and it's a million
0: people. It's a million people. And they're all great. Mm. Yeah, and it's obviously a, a topic that was all over the headlines. So you're right that the writer-director, Scott Z. Burns, has a tough time in not coming across like a sledgehammer. Right. But still making you realize what this is. Guy was up against, as he was uncovering all this and what his responsibility was. The the roadblocks that he that he found. It's funny. We we got in the mail yesterday, part of uh, stuff we get for awards season. They sent us the entire actual report. They did that he did. You can see you can see the redactions and
1: everything. Yeah, it, it it's got kind of stunning. Yeah, honestly, it really was. I appreciate the way Burns. Was able to try to cut things up a little bit so that you don't spend the whole time poring over documentation. He actually goes to the prisons periodically. He actually, you know, sits in with the CIA as they're trying to debate their next step so that they can keep this information from going public. One of my favorite things about this movie is that two of the CIA guys are played by Ted Levine and Michael C. Hall. <laughs>
0: Which Ted is such, Levine, if you don't remember, was Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs.
1: Yeah, and Hall was Dexter. Dexter from yeah. so I love that, the fact that he just very slyly casts two guys best known for playing serial killers as a couple <laughs> of the main guys in the CIA. I mean, it's a lot to pay attention to, but I really think, especially for a first-time director, he did a great job of piecing it together with a realistic flow. And the, the theme in the end is less about the rage at the fact that this happened as much as it is about... You can't just turn away and think you're going to move forward. You have to take responsibility
0: for what you've done. Timely. Yes. And a thing like this, a movie like this, to not be a sledgehammer, like, like we've said, comes down a lot of times to how much you trust your audience. Yes. You've got to. You've got to trust them. And I think this movie does, this filmmaker does, and the movie is all the better for it. Right. So uh, we definitely recommend The Report. A couple of smaller movies also out this week. The first one tells the story of the historic Queen of Jhansi who fiercely led her army against the British East India Company in the infamous mutiny of 1857. This one's called The Warrior Queen of Jhansi. We will fight for what is ours, and we will win. We have lost too many men. Who said anything about men? Do you really think you can train these women to fight like men? No. No. I will train them to fight better than men.
1: It's interesting to me that this movie comes out like one week, maybe two weeks after Harriet. Mm, uh, for one yeah. thing, because they are two stories that are far, far past prime. To, it, it is important that we finally have these on a big screen. do. Con- and they're contemporaries. They're both alive in the mid-1800s when they sort of had their biggest effect on history. And as much as Harriet was certainly a flawed film, Casey Lemons put it together with a sort of a breathless quality of... Uh, it was borderline in action film. And director-co-writer Swati Bais whose heart is in the right place here, really, really could have taken a page from Casey Lemons because yeah. this is a... It's a movie about a warrior queen. We hear this a lot. And it's basically a chamber drama. There's a lot of clothes changing. There's a lot of beautifully draped sets. And there's very, very little
0: action. Well, it's something we've said about many, many movies because many... Movies fall prey to it. We talked about it uh, a little bit with Midway last week. There's too much telling and not enough showing, and movies are a show, show more than tell. So you can't just tell me, like Midway, he's the best pilot in the world. Well, okay, but we haven't seen it. We don't feel anything about it.
1: I thought of your review for Midway several times when I was watching this movie <laughs> because there's a point where she says, I'm no stranger to battle. And I thought, you're not. We I don't honestly, know that. Right. I hadn't seen it up to then. Right. I'm like, I don't, what is she talking about? Yeah,
0: so that means nothing to us.
1: No. There's even this weird sort of tacked on is it a romance? Maybe it isn't. I don't know what's going on here. And then eventually she tells this this British. Colonel that maybe she loves, maybe she doesn't. You've done so much for my family. And I thought, when? And,
0: what? And that I, <laughs> and that come that type of approach comes up time and again.
1: The whole film is like that. So Rupert Everett has a small part as the leader of the British East India Company army. Which is funny to me that the East India Company had an army, but whatever. And he's droll and funny. And actually he has Almost nuance. Like, he's not 100% pro, like, take over the Indians. And he's also not 100% with them. I mean, he actually goes back and forth as humans might. So yeah. I appreciated that. But that was the only performance in the film.
0: Yeah, and it's his daughter, Devika buys who co- co-writes and also stars.
1: Yes, she plays the warrior queen. And she doesn't do... It's not as if she does a bad job as the actor. As the writer, I have some issues because... There's just, yeah. There's so much. Show, there's so much telling. There's absolutely no showing.
0: Right. And we've, as we've said many times, it always starts with the writing. And the writing here just is, yeah, too much. Too much telling. If you're gonna make a movie about the warrior queen, it shouldn't be a chamber piece. That's exactly. Absolutely right. And finally, we have a nuclear device causing electromagnetic pulse that kills power to more than 200 million people. A teenage girl has to help lead her family to survival in a dark new world. This one is called Radio Flash. It's devastating wiped out the entire western United States. There's no food or water. What do we do? You get here. I've got everything we need. It'll be a safe place, I promise you. This is the real deal. The clock is ticking. You gotta get moving. What is it not called? It's not called Radio Clash, which um, God help you when you try to get that song out of your head. Though we've been singing it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, the song is a lot better than so the movie. So much
1: better. Yeah, this is a movie that just doesn't really know where it's going uh, because, and and it's so lazy even about getting there. But it starts off where she's in this virtual reality sort of puzzle room, and she's trying to figure out her way out. And I and I guess that shorthand too. She's very reliant on technology. So what is she going to do when the whole nation goes black? Um, well, she's going to stumble into her dad, her grandpa's shed open a book to the very page that says Radio Flash, read aloud the definition of Radio Flash. And it's like, I'm telling you, it's like, I don't know, 30 minutes into a blackout. Why she doesn't think it's just a blackout is beyond me, but she's decided it's this nuclear pulse and they better find Grandpa because they're going to have to live off the
0: land. This is this is writer director Ben McPherson and he's only done shorts and documentaries up to now so this is his first big screen narrative and it it's a little wanting a re- lot wanting it
1: really is it's so funny too because there are a lot of you know, post apocalyptic style films, but most of them, even Cormac McCarthy, gave you a few weeks before people turn to cannibalism. You know, like <laughs> inside of 24 hours, citizens turn on the police. You know, they're killing each other on the highways. And then she winds up alone in the woods. She's kidnapped at one point. Oh my God, just mass hysteria, dogs and cats living together. <laughs> It happens just so suddenly. And then, of course, she finds herself in the hands of mountain people. It's not good, George. <laughs> it's
0: not a good movie. It's not. So uh, we'll just move on and head to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Boy, a lot in the lobby, so we'll run through them. But, boy, there's a lot good in the lobby. Yes, it's a good week. It is a good week for home video releases, starting with The Farewell. That is fantastic. I would like to see some Oscar consideration for this one. Absolutely. Uh, It's the story of the Chinese family discovering their grandmother has a short while to live. Nay-nay. Nay-nay, and and not telling her. Uh, Instead, using it as an excuse to everybody get together and, and see her one last time. They come up with a ruse about it. And it's really, really well done. Aquafina is great. Gosh, she's so in, in good in the lead as a, a Chinese American who's been living in in America and then comes back to visit Ninei And then you, through her, you see this pull of traditions. Right. And is she going to go along with the ruse? Is she not? Her family's afraid she's going to give it up. And it's really charming. Really, it's also funny. It is funny. It's funny and and well written and <laughs> well is. acted. And and please see the farewell. Also, Good Boys comes out this week. Um, it's funny, too. It's
1: funny. I mean, it's not a masterpiece, uh, and it relies a little too heavily on that sort of gimmick of let's let's hear small children say bad words, but it's funny. It
0: is. It's sort of like the story of Superbad only taken down. Middle instead school. Of, it's middle school, school. Superbad. Instead of getting ready, <laughs> the, instead of the friends leaving each other when they go to college, they're getting ready to move on into junior high, which is not as big of a life move. Right. So that's one of the reasons it, it doesn't hit you as much, say, in the feels. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh,
0: and so that way I think the movie kind of gets caught between laughing with the kids and laughing at them. Yes. Just a little bit. But still, it's it's pretty solidly it's funny. funny in some ways. So we, we, we did laugh at good boys. Midnight Traveler is out the documentary we just talked about a couple of weeks ago boy it's it's a tough watch sometimes, but it's so worth it. It's shot very first person point of view um, on three iPhones by an Afghani filmmaker who had a basically a death bounty put on his head by the Taliban mm-hmm. uh, and had to leave Afghanistan and, and search for a safe place to live for his family and it's It really lets you see a a crisis that lives in anonymity so often on the news really. You get it personified with intimacy of this is what happened. There's one family, one family dealing with it on a day-to-day basis, and it's very effective.
1: And likely Oscar contender, I would think, for Best Documentary.
0: I think so. The Peanut Butter Falcon is out this week.
1: I dare you not to like this movie. Dare you. It's just, it couldn't be more heartwarming and at the same time sincere. Like, it's not schmaltzy, it's not... Forcing you into it. It's such a lovely, charming
0: film. It really is. And it stars Zach, who is a Down Syndrome actor. He's great uh, as a a boy who wants to go visit his idol, his wrestling idol's wrestling camp. Yes, From the Saltwater Redneck. And he goes along with uh, Shia LaBeouf's character, who's on the run. From small town hoodlums that he uh, wronged, and they get off on an adventure. Very Huck finish, yes, very. very much so. And then uh, Zach's caseworker, played by Dakota jo- Johnson, is on their tail. And yeah, it's a fable; it really is. But it's so committed to mm-hmm. it, you never ever feel like it's charity for Zach. No, this, because it was written for him. It really was. Uh, but and it, he's great. He's great. Yeah. And it's such a feel-good movie. I know that's the biggest cliche in the world, but there's really. No way you can talk about this movie without saying so. It's such a great feel-good story. Uh, so earnestly performed and, and uh, produced and very recommend The Peanut Butter Falcon. Can't say as much about Brian Banks.
1: That is one that feels forced. It feels like, the because it's a true story, and it's a fascinating true story, but it feels like they're trying too hard to make you notice how you're supposed to feel, yep. and they're not giving enough actual quality time to the human beings who were involved. They're, they're all one-dimensional,
0: either all good or all bad. It's kind of, well, it's a disappointment. Well, and that's, that's the key to a movie like this. You've got to make it feel like they're real people. Mm-hmm. And it, too often it, it does not. 47 meters down, uncaged... Comes out and uh, this one was, it was more fun again, that sort of like Charlie's Angels, more fun than I expected it would be. You, it's the same guy that's a uh, writer director from 47 Meters Down and he finds new ways to give the guy credit. He can do some shark action. <laughs> is it ridiculous? Sure, yes. it is. But for ridiculous sharky fun, um, <laughs> you can't go wrong with 47 Meters Down uncaged. Speaking of uncaged, you can go wrong with an uncaged Nicolas Cage in Primal. You yeah. can go way wrong.
1: We just talked about this last week, so we don't need to really rehash it, but it should have been. Now, it was never going to be a masterpiece, no. but his Nicolas Cage as a big game hunter on a cargo boat. His his big game is set free on the boat with him and a serial killer. That should have been Nicolas Cage
0: gold,
1: and it just wasn't. <laughs> it's, not,
0: it's not. Yeah, unfortunately. And After the Wedding comes out for home video this week as well.
1: Yeah, it's a remake of an Oscar-actual-nominated foreign language film, and the American update, as is very often the case, is a tedious
0: bore. Okay, there you go. So, plenty of good stuff, though, not only in the theaters, but on home video to choose from. And as always, if you want to discuss, we are up for that. You can find us easily on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf, M A D D W O L F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it is Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website for all our written reviews, as well as our other horror movie only podcast, Fright Club, you can find that at madwolf.com. Another big week, could be another big week next week. A beautiful day in the neighborhood. Comes oh, out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Tom Hanks is Mr. Rogers. Frozen 2. You might have heard of Frozen. <laughs> uh, maybe. Frozen 2 comes out. Also, 21 Bridges with uh, Chadwick Bozeman. Uh, Frankie. Don't know much about that and Scandalous, the true untold story of the National Enquirer. Interesting. All that is next week. So we always appreciate you stopping by the Screening Room. And
1: wherever it is you happen to be listening, if you would take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review, we would appreciate it.
0: Very much so. So until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.